This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. For thousands upon thousands of years since the dawn of humanity, there were only five planets known beyond Earth. There was Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, the naked-eye planets visible in the sky. Even past heliocentrism, past the Copernican Revolution, when you can include Earth among those, it was only those six classical planets that were known to all of humanity. But with the advent of larger and larger telescopes towards the end of the 18th century, Uranus, the next planet out, was serendipitously discovered. While a number of planets in between Mars and Jupiter were discovered initially in the early 1800s, it was realized pretty quickly that these were too small and low in mass to actually be planets, and they turned out to be asteroids, members of what we now know as the asteroid belt. But it was the motion of Uranus, which didn't line up with Kepler's and Newton's laws, that provided a hint of what lied beyond, that provided a hint of a true eighth planet in our solar system, which was found in the mid-1800s thanks to the theoretical work of Urbain Le Verrier. The planet Neptune was predicted due to its gravitational pull and tug that must be perturbing the orbit of Uranus. For nearly a hundred years after Neptune's discovery, there were no further planets discovered. But after the invention of photography and its application to astronomy, things got much more interesting. We could suddenly take pictures of large portions of the deep sky in and out of the ecliptic plane and look and see if things had moved from night to night. While we wound up discovering a large number of comets and asteroids from this technique, one very interesting thing that emerged was one point of light that appeared to move slowly and steadily in the deep distant sky. This was discovered in 1930 by Clyde Tombaugh and was for a long time known as the ninth planet, Pluto. For more than 60 years, other than Pluto and its satellite, Charon, no other objects out beyond Neptune were known to exist in our solar system. Yet as the 1990s came around and we started to discover not just one new but many new objects that became known as trans-Neptunian objects, we started to recognize that the Kuiper belt, which was theoretical for a long time, actually existed and beyond that very conceivably lied an Oort cloud. In other words, these small, mostly icy bodies existed in great abundance and in a myriad of sizes out beyond Neptune. It just took us that long. It took us two or three generations to begin discovering what really lied out there. So the structure of our solar system appeared to be four inner rocky worlds, an asteroid belt, four gas giant worlds with their rings and moons, and out beyond that, a belt of Kuiper belt objects, trans-Neptunian objects made mostly of ice with a mixture of rock in there, and then Oort cloud objects, which is where the theoretical long-period comets come from. 
Every once in a while, someone would throw out the theoretical possibility, though, that perhaps there was a large, unseen object out there beyond the orbit of Neptune, not these small, icy and rocky bodies like Pluto-sized objects or, or even Mercury-sized objects, but people theorized about that perhaps there was a long-period, dim, faint star bound to our solar system. Perhaps there was a failed star like a brown dwarf, or perhaps there was a gas giant out there in the Oort cloud. The original motivation for this was that large extinction events which show up in Earth's sedimentary rock history seem to exhibit some sort of periodicity on the span of either 26 or 30 or 65 or so million years, depending on how you look at it, how you interpret the geological record. So there were ideas that these large extinction events happen periodically due to the fact that one of these massive objects might either perturb the Oort cloud or pass near through the solar system on long period time scales and that they could kick comets or asteroids towards Earth, towards the inner solar system, and result in a severely increased risk of a catastrophic impact. When we go to the geological record for evidence, however, there are two strong pieces of evidence that are missing. One is when you look at the mass extinction events that occur, it's not very strong evidence that exists that these actually are periodic. In other words, we only have a few small sample events that correspond with mass extinctions. And in addition, most of them don't appear due to asteroid or comet strikes. It's true that Earlier in the solar system's history, these strikes were much more common. But when we look at the boundary layer between the Cretaceous and the Tertiary periods, where the dinosaurs went extinct and small mammals emerged as the dominant form of life on Earth, there's a thin layer of ash known as the KT layer that exhibits very specific radioactive isotope abundances that are consistent with elements found in asteroids and not on Earth. We don't see that anywhere else in the sedimentary rock record, indicating to us that the other mass extinctions were likely not caused by asteroids or comets. However, we've done one even better than that. NASA has launched all-sky infrared surveys like TUMAS and WISE that would have seen if there is a low-mass star or even a failed star or potentially even a large Jupiter-like object out in the outer solar system beyond Neptune that could even be thousands of times farther away than the outermost planet, we would have seen it it would have shown up on these all-sky surveys. The fact that we haven't seen them tells us that there might be an object as massive as maybe Saturn out there, but we can't go any more massive than that. Otherwise, the heat signature, the infrared signature, would have showed up in these surveys. So most of these Kuiper Belt objects exhibit similar properties. They have aphelions that take them a little bit farther away 
than perihelio, which is their closest approach to the sun. But all in all, the orbits are still fairly circular. They might be a little squished or a little stretched into an ellipse, but they're not severely stretched out. In other words, the most distant Kuiper Belt objects don't appear to go that many times farther away than Neptune is from the sun. This is true for Pluto and Quawar and Eris and Haumea and Makemake and almost all of the other Kuiper Belt objects that we know. But there was something weird that started to appear among these Kuiper Belt objects. Sure, most of them, like Eris and Haumea, and even Quawar, seem to exhibit similar properties to Pluto. Similar orbits, similar masses, and yes, there's some variety in their reflectivity properties and their colors. But they all sort of belong to the same class of Kuiper Belt objects. Until we discovered Sedna. Sedna was a little bit weird because it was farther away than most of these objects, but when we reconstructed its orbit, we found that there was a semi-major axis that took it out way past the other objects. Most objects have a perihelion and an aphelion that are relatively close together. Pluto, for instance, might actually come interior to the orbit of Neptune and then move maybe twice as far away at its farthest, at aphelion. So perihelion is when you're the closest to the sun, and aphelion is when you're the farthest. Well, at perihelion, Sedna is approximately at Pluto's aphelion, right? It's not that much farther away than Pluto gets. But at its farthest, Sedna is many, many times, hundreds or even thousands of AU, astronomical units, farther away than all the other Kuiper Belt objects we had discovered. So something weird was going on. Sedna has a very eccentric orbit. It takes it farther away from the sun than all other Kuiper Belt objects that we had known of. And since then, we've discovered other long period, very eccentric, what we'll call trans-Neptunian objects that quite apparently aren't part of the Kuiper Belt. Initially, Sedna was thought to be an anomaly, or perhaps an interloper that just came from the Oort cloud or someplace farther out. But since then, it turns out that Sedna isn't all its own. There are other very long period, very eccentric trans-Neptunian objects that appear to not originate from the Kuiper Belt. We have a total of six as of January 2016. And yet there's an odd fact about all of them. What you would expect under normal circumstances is that there would be a random distribution of these trans-Neptunian objects. They would come from all directions. They would have perihelia in all locations. They would have a random distribution in both ecliptic latitude and ecliptic longitude. That's what you'd expect to find. And yet, oddly, if you take a look at all six of these, 
If you ask, how are their ecliptic latitudes distributed? How are their longitudes distributed? And these are the distributions of their perihelia, of the points of their closest approach in orbit. You find that they're narrowly clustered in both latitude and longitude, a fact for which, according to our present understanding of the solar system, there's no good explanation. In science, we don't just look at something and say, huh, that's an odd fact. What we do is we calculate how likely is this that this type of clustering would occur at random. And if it turns out that actually it might seem odd, but it's totally within the realm of normal, then we let it go and say this is a normal thing. But if there's something weird, if there's something where you say, wow, this is extraordinarily unlikely, then perhaps we can find a cause for why these objects exhibit this type of clustering. So what we did when we calculated this is we said, what are the odds of this latitude and longitude clustering occurring at random? Well, for each of them, for both the latitude and the longitude independently, we had a less than 1% chance, a less than 1 in 100 odds of having this clustering. And so when you ask what are the odds of finding them together, of finding latitudes and longitudes that both cluster this narrowly, well, the odds of that happening randomly are less than 1 in 10,000. This is a really spectacularly rare thing. And so you wonder if finding this clustering is a special thing. Rather than just being a rare event, rather than just being something we coincidentally happen to stumble into, could there be a physical explanation for this strange phenomenon that all of these oddball trans-Neptunian objects, could they be caused by something physical that's out there? Well, there was one physical explanation that lined up. What if there was a large planet out there, something larger than Earth but smaller than Neptune, a world of this size that took tens of thousands of years to orbit the sun, far longer than any planet. The farthest planet out, Neptune, takes only 165 years to make a complete orbit around the sun. Even Pluto, not a planet, takes just a little over 200 years to make a complete revolution around the sun. Yet a world that was in between Earth and Neptune in mass and size could take tens of thousands of years to orbit, and as it passed through either the outer Kuiper belt or the inner Oort cloud, it would perturb whatever objects were out there and create this strange clustering pattern in ecliptic latitude and longitude of these trans-Neptunian objects. This theory, put forth earlier this year, earlier in 2016, by Mike Brown and Constantine Badigan, is known as the Planet Nine theory. This is the theory that there is a large world, larger than any of the inner rocky planets, but smaller than the gas giants, much more distant than any of the known worlds. This Planet Nine theory has a number of consequences that we'd expect to observe if it in fact existed. One would be there's a population of anti-aligned Kuiper Belt objects that have long period. They would have the opposite ecliptic latitude and longitude to the six we've already found. 
A second one would be there would be a large population of highly inclined objects. These would be objects that aren't roughly in the ecliptic plane, but that come at strange angles different angles from what most objects orbit in in our solar system. These objects should exist in the Kuiper Belt with medium to long periods and possibly retrograde orbits to most objects. In other words, they would revolve around the Sun in the opposite direction to that of most of the planets we know. And additionally, there would be a yet undiscovered mechanism to keep the semi-major axes of these discovered objects clustered between about 150 to 250 astronomical units, right? Or an additional population of similar objects to Sedna with even larger semi-major axes. Now, these are three predictions that we don't really have evidence for yet. The population of anti-aligned Kuiper Belt objects does not exist yet. For the highly inclined orbits in the Kuiper Belt, we do have a few, most famously DRAC, the long-period trans-Neptunian object we know of. So it's possible we started to have evidence for that. And we do not yet know what the mechanism is that keeps the semi-major axes of these objects clustered so tightly or whether there are in fact longer period objects that we just haven't discovered because they're not close to perihelion. One other thing we could look for, depending on the mass of this object, is whether it perturbs the orbit of Neptune. When we take into account all the known masses of the inner worlds of the solar system and the sun and the comets and the asteroids and the other Kuiper Belt objects, if Neptune's motion still doesn't agree with what you expect from the theory of gravity, there could be an extra effect due to Planet 9 depending on where it's located. When I reached out to Mike Brown to tell him that I was skeptical of this because we didn't yet have the evidence for these new predictions he was looking for, he reminded me that that's why you make predictions, because you don't know what the answer is. To quote him, here's what he said. Nothing that we know about the solar system is complete. We will keep finding more objects with Sedna-like orbits. Our prediction is that they will continue to line up. And what he was talking about is lining up in ecliptic latitude and longitude with that same clustering pattern we observed. What he's predicting is that all of these new trans-Neptunian objects with these medium-long periods will continue to have the same orbital parameters consistent with one giant massive perturber, either a super-Earth or a mini-Neptune, depending on whether it has a gas envelope or not, that causes, as it flies through the inner Oort cloud, these objects to get hurled towards the inner solar system. Well, just a few weeks ago, we got a little bit of news. There was a seventh long-period trans-Neptunian object discovered. And guess what? It also has the same latitude and longitude as the other six. In other words, the exact piece of evidence, the exact prediction that we said should happen, should pan out if Planet Nine is real, has come to pass. As we continue to find more trans-Neptunian objects, we also expect that their latitudes and longitudes will line up.
The next step, how to verify whether Planet Nine actually exists, we have to find it. We need to directly image it, something that there are observational efforts underway to do right now. This is not the same as other claims of a ninth planet or an extra world out beyond Neptune that we've heard in the past. This is not saying that Pluto is ever going to be a planet again. We know that Pluto has the properties it does, and it's an interesting world, but it does not achieve planetary status. This is not saying that there is a large sun-like object or failed star or super large gas giant out beyond Neptune. We don't think we have one of those, or our infrared surveys would have picked it up. Instead, this time, the possibility of a ninth planet is truly tantalizing, and unlike previous incarnations that have hit the news, there's actually some really good evidence this time. But is the evidence good enough to believe it? In order for us to announce that Planet Nine is real, we have to discover it. We have to directly detect it. Finding these consequences is going to be a great hint. It's going to tell us where to look for it. It's going to tell us how to find it. It's going to allow us to reconstruct what its orbit appears to be, what its orbit would have to be for the gravitational influence to cause the trans-Neptunian objects to appear where they do. But to find it directly, we need telescopes like Keck and Subaru, or perhaps the next generation of 30-meter class telescopes, like the Giant Magellan Telescope, the TMT, or even the EELT, which will clock in at 39 meters and set the ultimate record. We could have missions like NEOWISE or a future ground or space-based project. If they get lucky or they look in the right location, they could find this ninth planet. But until they do, no one will rightfully believe that it exists. It's a good theory and it's a compelling theory and it's interesting and there's indirect evidence for it. But in order to push it over that hump and say we've actually got it, we actually have a ninth significantly large world in our solar system, there's no substitute for actually finding and locating it ourselves. But there's no cause for pessimism here. Searches are already underway. For all we know, the solar system might be far richer and more complex than anyone had reason to imagine just a few months ago. And if there's a planet nine out there, who knows what lies even further away in the outer reaches of our solar system that we have yet to explore. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible through the generous contributions of our Patreon donors. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month and and above level, because without you, this podcast wouldn't be possible. Thanks to Bakhtiar, Robert J. Hansen, Kathy Reese, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Nick Tomlinson, Rafal Wojcik, Jason Besanseni, Pedro Texera, Brian Terry, Danny, Dennis Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew Douglas, 
Weller Tractor Salvage, Richard Jousey, Amira Sosnick, Mark Bradshaw, Jim Cummings, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Harry Plumley, John Methot, Jose Enrique, Joe McFarland, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbida, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Fletch, Philip Radilovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks everyone, and I'll see you back here next time for more Wonders of the Universe and more Starts with a Bang. <laughs>